Hello and welcome to the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast, where we listen into a group of rural firefighters as they give their opinions on the challenges they face both on and off the fireground. We release a new episode every week, so please hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this with your fire family and friends. Now on to this week's episode, where as always, we ask the question, are you DTFF? Hello and welcome to the Volunteer Firefighter Podcast. I am much less English than Carl, and I am joined by two members of my firefighting family. Uh, my name is Ash, and I have Scott. Hey. And we have Todd. Hello. Relaxing on this bed. Yeah, this is weird. So we uh, <clears throat> clearly we are at home. We are doing this over a Zoom. Uh, Carl isn't with us tonight. <clears throat> he... Uh, he injured his back uh, a couple, couple weeks back, which is a, a partial reason why we weren't around last week, uh, as well as just some of the uh, the latest restrictions that we're all dealing with with uh, this coronavirus and everything that goes along with it. Um, and with that, uh, I think we have a little bit of news, uh, which is uh, kind of a big deal for us up in Canada. Somebody wants to grab that? I think it's a big deal worldwide. It's uh... For sure. Was it, they call it a V-Day. That was actually that was last week, I think, in um, in uh, England. They 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 started doing the first uh, vaccinations, and uh, supposedly Canada gets theirs next week, but it's only going to be a few thousand. So, um, won't make a real dent in anything until probably spring summer. But it's a good first start. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it's going to be a good. Uh... It's going to be a slow rollout in the beginning, but uh, very coordinated with the military being involved as well to help with just the logistics of the mass population, and and we'll see how uh, how it starts rolling out. Yeah. I was reading. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it has to be refrigerated, so it's uh, it has to be stored at a certain temperature. Um, obviously, the first rollout is a lot smaller quantity, um, so. I'm not sure what that's going to mean for us Canadians and us out West, but uh, uh, once they start rolling out in larger numbers, uh, there's only a few airports in British Columbia that can house such larger shipments of dosages, which I believe was going to be Vancouver and Kamloops, which was weird. I don't know why Kamloops has a large refrigeration facility but uh i guess yeah it's something to keep in mind there the uh, logistics of uh, of how this has to uh be shipped be stored um i think i'm just happy that something's happening um get get the first rollout happening and uh, like i think scott was saying there i think come springtime is when when the masses will probably start to uh show some effect of of um obviously the new vaccine rolling but uh yeah interesting there nonetheless um you should get uh you should get yeti yeti to sponsor them yeti oh to keep the vaccines <laughs> cool yeah uh, they are <laughs> pretty pretty snazzy they're uh <laughs> yeah um, the government also <laughs> has no money left because yeti's so goddamn expensive but that's true. they're not cheap yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wouldn't say no to sponsorship from yeti though 
No, oh, absolutely not. I I really enjoy my Yeti stuff. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If Yeti wants to reach out and sponsor us in a smaller scale, that would be great. Yeah. I'll stick my uh, vaccine in my in my mug. That's right. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so what have you been up to the last little bit here, guys? I know uh, we had a course that was put on uh, down south, actually, in Todd's department. Uh, yeah, we, we did. Were, uh, we were uh, graciously invited to attend that and uh unfortunately i had to bow out i couldn't i couldn't attend but uh, both of you guys were able to uh sit in on that so why don't you tell us what that was all about actually yeah um i wonder if todd could explain how that came about because it was interesting i mean it, it's an interesting uh like the funding from yeah from what the instructors were saying well i guess we can um, tell them what it is first and yeah, so basically, so we did uh, we did a hazmat operations <clears throat> course um, for our department. We definitely needed it to uh, get all of our guys through the 1001 program, and then um, other departments as well came in. And it, it's it's a great great course to have. It, it's one of those, you know, it's it's fairly important. Uh, you got the awareness level, the ops level, and then your your tech level. Um, so this one was just uh, just a portion of the awareness and then your operations. Um, but uh, where it all kind of started from was the IAFF, and I can't remember if I'm going to get it totally right, but they have uh, very large grants and funding involved um, to help train it and spread it around through um, kind of North America here. So their program, uh, basically, I believe our chiefs applied for it. And they were able to train 20 some odd people up to, I think 20, up to 22 people um, in the course. So we were able to combine a couple other departments uh, such as yourselves, a handful of ours, and then uh, two other adjacent departments. And it didn't cost us a dime. So that was very cool. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, like it started down in the States, is that like with like Homeland or something? Um, had a bunch of funding and then uh and then the canadians up here they took it on as a uh, uh they started um, um canvassing the government and federal government and the federal government coughed up some money every year i guess and they put these courses on and yeah like the instructor said it's you know it's like a thousand dollar fifteen hundred dollar course so you know, it's like 20 grand right there uh -huh. um, that was for free which is perfect for small departments um, yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, it's very, very budget friendly. Yeah, and you know, and city guys aren't the only ones that are going to run into hazmat. And I think, in fact, smaller, smaller areas run into hazmat probably just as much, if not more. Yeah, yeah and I sure. remember. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was going to say, like the uh, one of the instructors, like they mentioned, like you know, he's on the uh, the hazmat tech truck and stuff, and. You know, it's only a handful of times a year where they actually have the full-blown, you know, what they call the Gucci suits, right? The Class A's. <clears throat> um, however, we know we know there's all sorts of small calls that could be considered hazmats as well. Um, but the the full-blown, like what everybody thinks of when you say hazmat, like it's a very very low um, percentage of calls through through the year, uh, and those are huge city departments. Mm. with a massive area yeah 
Yeah, I think uh, you know one of the things that really stood out was the fact that you don't need you don't need the Gucci suit as and they were calling it for for like ninety eight percent of any hazmat call. Um, most hazmat calls can be done with just our our regular bunker gear, turnout gear, and an SCBA. Um, I thought that was really That's cool because I think everybody thought, oh, we're going to be wearing these suits, and why were we why would we learn this because we're never going to you have these suits available, but Nope, I think, yeah, like they were saying, almost everything can be done uh, with structural gear on. Yeah, there's there's a huge <clears throat> portion of um, kind of that, that awareness and ops level of, you know, making the scene safe. Is it a viable save or not? Or, or what can I be going in and doing to mitigate something, whether it's simply, uh, you know, turning a, a cylinder over or a barrel over? Uh, upright to stop the spill you know can I go shut off the valve uh, you know and by being aware and going through your can you tech book um, you know like and your, your ERG is it you know what I don't know what's the, I guess the word is uh, it's it's safe enough to go in your gear it's going to give you somewhat protection uh, for prolonged times no and that's why we're, we're not talking we're not going and doing tech level stuff being exposed you know, um, for prolonged periods of time, but you had to properly assess and then mitigate, you know, whatever scene you have. So you're very limited exposure in that bunker gear. So from what I'm hearing there, it sounds like uh, our bunker gear in most exposures um, is suffice in sort of the warm zone. Um, for a, a quick grab and like you say to sort of mitigate the spill or exposure in the hot zone and then kind of right back out but if it's a more of a large-scale event that's when you are going to need some of those um larger class a suits yeah they're um they're calling it a, a, a dipstick uh, approach so you just you kind of slide in and um slide in do your thing whether it's uh you know, take the patient out of the hot zone or, or like Todd said, flip the barrel back up or, or whatever you have to do. Um, but it's like that super quick in and out. Um, I think that probably the main safety thing we have on us um, is not even our turnout gear. It's our, it's our SCBA. It's more, more the SCBA. That's yeah, right. because yeah. I think the two primary paths are, are inhalation and ingestion of hazardous material. And mm -hmm. obviously both those um, are covered with uh, SC, proper SCBA usage. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that, like you said, that's the that's the biggest risk of exposure for us is that uh, inhalation and and um, uh, absorption, right, through the mucous membranes and stuff. So by having our SCBA on is is that you know number one stop, uh, and then that bunker gear provides us that lower level of exposure protection. Uh, and then with that, of course, we had lots of discussion and lots of. Um, scenarios on you know what else can we be doing to mitigate some of those fumes or toxic exposures uh, or if it's a vapor cloud or whatever the case may be right you know so we talked about use of ppvs use of fog streams uh, and again this is all in the context of we're only going in if it's a viable save for patients or you know it's that risk versus benefit like can i just have a very small risk of exposure which yes, it's dangerous. However, it's going to be a very short, short time frame. Like you said, it's got that dipstick approach, and uh, you know, go in and just do that simple valve shut off, and then now you've mitigated it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think one of the funny, not funny, it was like one of the um, scenarios they gave us, it was it was a classroom, like sit down scenario in a group, was um, it was like a tanker truck. Um, they gave us a placard, uh, they gave us a UN number. So we realized pretty quick it was gasoline. Um, the scenario was it was dripping. It was dripping underneath this car accident. Um, and how do you approach that scene? And how do you mm-hmm. stop that hazmat situation? And, you know, everybody starts getting into all these like crazy um, situations. Like they start doing all this crazy thinking. And really uh, what it came down to was it's basically a dripping gas tank. <laughs> like it doesn't matter the size of the gas tank. It's literally just dripping some, some gas. So what would we do on an accident scene? We'd, we'd either throw a bucket down, we'd throw some kitty litter down, we'd yeah. get the patients out of there. We could use, we could use the fan to blow some of those fumes mm-hmm. away. Um, we'd obviously have a, ho- a charge hose stream for uh, backup, but it was like, it's that's just that everybody thinks these hazmat calls are gonna be, you have to totally um, like suit up and do all this crazy stuff, or you could just think about it in another turn and another angle and be like, oh, actually this is a pretty simple call. Yeah, absolutely. I found it was, it was the typical, you know, fire department practice night, like everybody's overthinking the what ifs. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, massive, massive tanker truck or trailer, and it's got this horrible toxic, you know, fluid inside. I was like, okay, well, look at the amount that's dripping. Like you said, like, you know, we can mitigate this so quickly and easily, but we're all jumping the gun. So just getting practice of going through the ERG guides, uh, identifying what the chemicals or compounds are, you know, quickly understanding what the next step is, like how compatible is to, you know, if it's reactive to water or air, fire, et cetera, you know, by using that NEOSH guide as well. And then we know we have all this information within a couple of minutes of how to exactly go in and, and deal with that situation. Whether, you know, like you said, just this is a simple bucket to catch it, you know, done. You know, you've got your charge hose stream in case of the fire, the next major level of, of an event. And, um, you know, whether you're using a PPV or that fog stream to m- mitigate that, um, you know, vapors um, and do that viable save. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the, the guide usage was uh, was uh, was uh, that was obviously one of the big things. Uh, how to use the um, the ERG guide, um, which is the emergency response guide. Um, you can either use that in uh, paper format or in um, <clears throat> on the um, app they have. Um, mm-hmm. so, and that's free in Canada. Um, you can and you can obviously order the books um, through Canutech in Canada. Um, I'm not sure what it is in the states. Todd, do you remember? Um, I'm not sure what it is in the States. Uh, I know, like, I've used the Wiser Guide, the Wiser that app. Be, that might be the one. In the past. Um, <clears throat> so it's their NIH or whatever it's called, or NLM. I have right. no idea what that stands for. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the Wiser app is a good one. It's, it's a little bit more in-depth uh, with certain things. You can choose kind of your tech level or what level you, of responder you are, et cetera, to give you certain things. Um, and then here it gives us that ERG guide. Yeah, yeah, the ERG guide, uh, you know, learning how to use that quickly was uh, was definitely helpful. Um, I've used it before, but just um, not as in-depth as we, we did it that weekend. And then uh, the NIOSH, which is, you know, you kind of have to know mm-hmm. a little bit of grade, grade eight, grade nine science to understand certain things. They taught us pretty well. Um, 
probably forgot most of it by now. It's only been a week, but <laughs> um, you know, there's important things on, you know, um, will the, will the, if it's a liquid, will it float on water? Um, that's important because if it catches on fire, if you add water to it, will it flow towards you? Like we saw in a couple of those videos where that ladder truck went up because these mm -hmm. guys were fighting a chemical fire and the next thing, whatever was in the tank spilled and was on fire and came out and engulfed their ladder truck. Um, uh, important things like that, you know, one thing is um, ammonia. We have anhydrous ammonia around here running through all of our, all of our arenas and all of our fruit packing plants. Um, understanding that if you apply water to ammonia, um, it's soluble in water. So um, just applying copious amounts of water to that ammonia cloud will knock it out of this, basically knock it out of the sky and make it somewhat harmless. Um, so just things like that. And that was, uh, that was really helpful. Yeah, I think uh, it was very, very good with going through that, uh, <clears throat> that NEOSH guide, you know, like right away, it takes you to, um, sorry, my dog, get out of here, Rocco. <laughs> Go. <laughs> like a hundred pounds anyways um so then when you open up that neosh guide you know the first thing you go to that idlh box so it's going to be able to to um show you know what what's the percentage um you know how dangerous is it, is it going to kill me etc right you know and yeah. then it's neat how you know, it starts breaking down to like you were just saying scott to the other chemical and physical properties you know your boiling points your freezing points solubility your vapor pressures because some of the other scenarios that they're throwing at us <clears throat> again back to your grade nine science is uh you know you get a call for xyz chemical and you know it's dripping and it's 40 degrees outside you know is it going to be there when you get there you know yeah. because of the evaporation rate so your vapor pressure so all that stuff was fairly new to me uh, that was my biggest takeaway i really enjoyed going through that and, and learning how to be familiar with that but yeah. um yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah, you know, that freezing point, like you were talking about, was pretty interesting, because if, you know, that, going back to that drip we had in the tanker truck that we were talking about, if that was a certain uh, chemical where the um, freezing point was a lot closer to, like, air temperature, just a quick blast with the, um, with the CO2 extinguisher can actually uh, cause that line to freeze and, and just hold, and that's the one way to prevent the leak. Hmm. Todd's wrestling with his dog right now. I leave for a second and take my spot. God. I love being, being uh, at home doing Zoom. Right. It's a pretty big lap dog for sure. Yeah. Todd is blooded out by the dog right now. Yeah. Um, I think they... Sorry, Josh, go ahead. I was going to say, so you guys were down there Friday night, Saturday all day, and then Sunday. Um. Mm -hmm. It sounds like pretty heavy on the classroom Friday and most of the day Saturday, but you guys got into some live sims on Sunday as well. Yeah, I did a couple uh, little drill on one little drill on Saturday and then uh, the live simulation on Sunday. Um, <clears throat> I was just going to say one of the kind of one of the big points they, they drove home was, uh, you know, when we think hazmat, you think of, you know, like a tanker truck, like we were talking about, or, or some chemical plant leaking or, that sort of thing, but you know, one of the one of the main hazmat calls we actually go to are structure fires, um, and we don't really think that way. But when you think about what's in in a, in a typical house, like I mean, I'm downstairs right now in my house, and I'm looking around, and I can see several chemicals right now. Um, just the fact that when we go to these houses, we don't know what's in there uh, at all, 
and not saying even at like drug labs or anything like that. I'm talking like just solvents and things inside your basement or inside your garage. Um, so treating every fire as a um, as a hazmat call to some extent, uh, I think that was important. Um, and that kind of led us to that uh, to that decon that we're talking about, Todd. That's right. Yeah, and it's you know it's funny like you mentioned like when you're not thinking about hazmat stuff. Um, we all talk about, we know how dangerous the Comet House fire is with um, all the exposures and, and just the stuff that gets on our gear for deconning our gear. And we're always very cognizant of, of washing down our gear afterwards. <clears throat> but then, like you said, we sit there and we try and we overthink these actual hazmat calls where that's quite a controlled environment. You know, if it has, if it is placard and we can identify what the substance is, you know, we, we can usually control that very very easily and, and understand what that substance is whereas like you mentioned you know look at half the uh, farmers around here in the garages and storage sheds like there's nothing labeled like god knows the different amount of chemicals that are in half these places you know and we're running up to it in our normal bunker gear and our scba and we're still safe but it's that decon which we really need to be focusing on I think especially yes. for us, when you have a look back at some of our largest uh, structure fire events in the past 12, 24 months, I mean, sure, we, we have had a couple of uh, residential structures, but a lot of them have been uh, commercial base where it's been like a fruit stand. I mean, you hear fruit stand, you think everything, okay, fruit, veggie, that's all safe. But what about all of the chemicals and whatnot that comes along with that? We've had uh, packing houses, we've had large other large commercial buildings. I mean, these are all the buildings that you could potentially have some pretty massive exposures to um, God knows what. Um, so it's like you guys are saying, uh, you can definitely have a hazmat type call and we do have a hazmat type type call on next to every structure fire. Yeah. That kind of led us to the, there was a drill we did called, I think, it, I think it's called the last man out drill. Um, last man out drill, yeah. Yeah. And basically it's when you, if you actually get a major, almost like a, you know, a major exposure, how to uh, exit, you and your partner would exit. You could help your partner take his gear off, but then you're basically stuck because no one else is there to help you kind of thing. So um, we did this, we basically did this drill and like I, I did it with our guys on Thursday practice, just as an, as part of because we were teaching them hazmat coincidentally on Thursday. Um, and it's kind of not even necessarily you have to do the whole drill. It's just getting your mind around um, how to remove your gear with that um, that thought in mind that you could be contaminating yourself if you do it wrong, or if you do it not wrong, if you do it you know less desirable. If you you know there's there's better ways to do things. Um, I think the first thing is leaving your SCBA on at all times, like leaving that you're you're actually flowing air, you're breathing through your uh, apparatus while you're de getting deconned. Um, I think that's one thing sometimes um, I know we don't always um, do the best at like guys will take their mask off because they're talking to the, somebody and then now you're standing there and then decon starts and okay we'll just leave your mask off and sometimes you start spraying it's like well no because there's still lots of off gassing going on off your gear um, you've been exposed to chemicals so we should really leave our SCBA on um, breathing air the whole time until at least um, at least the gross decon is done um, but 
we should be getting the, you know the brushes out and all that kind of stuff too uh, and then yeah i just like that that drill because it was you know it started with uh you take your pack off sorry you take your helmet off and you take your pack off you leave your pack at, you leave your uh, mask on so you're still breathing air your pack's on the ground you're kneeling down now next take your jacket off it's kind of a little bit of weird because you're trying to get your jacket off um you basically have to flip it inside out and kind of stick your butt into it and pull your arms up through your jacket so your now your gloves and everything come kind of like you're like you're shucking an oyster kind of pulling yourself free of that and then you take your pants off from the inside so you don't touch your external gear and then uh, finally you just like kind of slip your hand underneath your chin and pull your mask or your, yeah your scba mask and your uh, balaclava off all in one piece um it was uh it was pretty interesting because it, it, yeah, it gets you that mindset of not touching uh your body for more exposure yeah absolutely you know it's <clears throat> it was really good i found like there's there's a lot of uh thoughts and discussions on on properly doffing and you know hazardous material situations and i feel for that kind of last night oh it's it's a really good one for departments who are low on manpower and maybe don't have <clears throat> necessarily the, the proper ppe as well to decon gear um and even if so like because we always like when you're actually in the world of, of deconning um you want somebody in equal or one step down of the level of ppe right as we're as we're deconning or assisting the decon um you know but at some point you're going to get to that you're going to be that last guy after you've cleaned everybody else off now you have to get your gear off so um we've always practiced to have a have a decon officer and i know we've talked about this in the past um scott like you have your decon officer you know it's very precise and slow methodical list like okay this instruction next step this instruction next step um and it's meant to be slow so we're not rushing and we're not um, missing those those key steps especially when we start talking about infectious diseases and stuff now as well um you know there's added things such as hand hygiene and things like that uh in place but um with just this with just the firefighting you know, when you have that contamination um you know on your gear that's why it's super important to flip everything inside out and kind of move the way you you were uh, talking um it was actually interesting because um i think about two nights two or three nights after we were done the um course we actually got a call um to our local hospital which isn't too serious of a thing normally but um but on this night, um, just so happens we've had a pretty major outbreak of COVID in our area. Um, just so happens it was in this one particular part of our hospital. Um, there's about, I want to say, 40 or 50 people in there right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, about that. Um, so, of course, call comes in, uh, sprinkler alarm. We roll up. Um, directions from the ICE and chief are just um, stand by. Don't go in yet. Don't just wait. Um, they, one officer kind of approached the building. Um, talk to the maintenance person um, everybody's kind of you know they're in their regular masks and stuff and then um, we realized pretty quickly that there is a actually a water pouring out of the uh, out of the uh, sprinkler system so it's definitely flowing water um, and then we realize it's coming from that particular unit so uh, me and another guy um, two guys in uh, we, we left two on the exterior and, and an officer outside as well um, we went in full um, SCBA, 
uh, structural gear, everything. Uh, and literally a leak is pouring through the ceiling in one of the actual rooms that it's like uh, kind of a COVID quarantine area. So that was interesting. Um, we went up, we found, uh, we found the pipe had split. Um, so we got the, got the water turned off. And um, yeah, once we had the water turned off, then we came back out and the, our, our, uh, our alarm bells were ringing because we were up there for quite a while. So then we come out and we had actually uh, basically did a full uh, decon, just like we just talked about, um, head to toe, um, spray down, and then uh, scrub down with uh, with our um, with the soap we use now, the current uh, disinfectant we use for um, sanitizing our gear, and then spray it again, and then uh, took the gear off using the last man method and put everything on the put everything outside the truck. We're just standing there in our regular street clothes, and then uh, we drove back, and then deconned our gear once again. So it was, uh, you know, it was one of those things where you, you train it and then you do it like two days later. Hey, I'm back. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't hear anything you guys talked about. I just my phone suddenly <laughs> died. <laughs> Well, the good news is there's going to be a podcast that you can catch right back up on. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, no, Scott was just talk, talking about the uh, call up to the uh, uh, long-term care facility that we had um, mm-hmm. and kind of all of the exposures that uh, they had to deal with and then putting that last man out um, technique in into play. So something that's, uh, you know, classic, train it and then and then run it seems seems to be the way things go around here we were practicing mbi uh, a lot of auto x and, and patient care and then next thing you know we're bang 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 we got all these calls rolling in and uh yeah you guys go go and run your hazmat course and next next thing you know yeah it was it was right in the eye of the storm there for sure yeah but, uh, exactly. yeah you know, definitely really really liked the way that uh, i see um you know start yourself there um and with Andrew and Bob, everybody just trying to minimize exposures, um, making sure that uh, that we had things in place with uh, proper decon on the outside of the building, um, something you know, something like that. It, it was an eerie, an eerie call. Um, you know, it was in the evening. I was responding from home. I think it was evening. Yeah, because yeah, uh, I was I was coming from home and. I'm I'm awesome during the during the day. I can get get to the hall in like three or three or four minutes tops. Uh, nighttime is, is is a different story. So uh, coming into the hall is the uh, first first trucks leaving. We we had a backup engine staffed ready to go, but realistically it was just an an alarm call um, with uh, some something to do with their their uh, water system. So we kind of knew it wasn't going to be a large manpower presence there and then just with the uh you know making that call to not overexpose and i mean the two of you guys that were in there judging from the outside you guys went through a lot of work i mean you had to get up into um the roof section and there was fire breaks that you had to try to nav try to nav around um not a lot of room to move obviously um and yeah it's it's a bit of a labyrinth up there for sure so um, like Scott was saying, by by the time that you guys got out, you were like, you were on on your way to being out of air. Yeah, and that's one thing uh, we didn't really talk about in that that last man out thing is uh, 
is because uh, we did obviously when we trained it we were doing it on uh you know full full air cylinders well this uh, you know we're we're up in the middle of the attic and the bell starts ringing and it, we just at that moment uh literally our bell started ringing just as we the water line was shut down so we're like all right we can get out of here so crawl back out through all the uh, firewalls and stuff um climb back through the uh attic grab the ladder make our way back out of the ward and get outside and then it's like okay now we're on the clock a little bit <laughs> now we're still breathing air and we gotta do like several layers of decon um so it was interesting i mean you know just smooth and slow and it's not like when you're getting decon you're, you're doing much work you're just standing there right so it's not like i have to do much so i just concentrate slow my breathing down um you know we still had a couple hundred psi left when we were done but that was definitely uh something to keep in mind um i think uh todd when i mentioned what happened you commented did you bring out the rip bag um, that was definitely mm -hmm. in the back of my mind. Um, I'm back of my mind is like we can bring the rit bag out and do the um, do the top up with the rit bag with the rit connector and carry on. Yeah, we're, exactly. We're, I think we're still good. Yeah, that's always one thing to to be aware of, and sometimes we tend to forget is that extra time of um, of just you know needing that air right for that decon for how long it's going to take. Yeah. Did, yeah, um, did, you guys talk, did you guys talk at all about just before I lost you guys about like uh, the direct contamination or like um, like secondary contamination when we're in the decomp process or no no yeah so the only thing I wanted to add is when I just talked about the, the process of deconning and taking your gear off is um, and the reason why we're so methodical and going slow uh, is uh, is we're worried with that secondary um, contamination. So it's that indirect transfer, right? Um, so that's why it's, it's really important having your decon team set up prior to entry for anybody else um, going into these into these situations, or warm zone or hot zones, um, especially now with COVID, you know, just to spin it, you know, with the hazmat team with COVID, you know, if you're going in there and anybody has these influenza-like illnesses, um, essentially you are doing your self decon as you come out, you know, that's what we're doing as medics. Um, and that's what the fire departments are doing as well with their, their gear and their, uh, SOGs. Um, so it's the exact same slow methodical process. And we do have to be aware of that secondary decontamination or secondary contamination rather. Um, cause that's big, you know, that's why we're very cautious. And when we start removing our face shields or our glasses, um, you know, we always use that hand hygiene because you're at a very high risk of that secondary um, contamination point. Right. Yeah, just uh, it's a big one. You know, that's uh, the majority of our if there if you're at any <laughs> the highest risk of uh, getting a contaminant on you um, is during that doffing process. So that's why we really slow things down and do it methodical because that's that highest percentage of getting um contamination and potentially exposed uh, is during that process right yeah so that pretty much uh i think it covers our kind of our hazmat weekend and the mm. little, um, incident that happened after right afterwards right uh, Ash, what were you, because uh, obviously I was doing hazmat and uh, you know, the, some of the crew wasn't too stoked about it because hazmat is not very exciting. Um, what were you doing for training for your scenario this week? Well, so 
yeah, Scott kind of pitched to the guys before we really said what we were doing. He's like, all right, we're going to be splitting into two different groups tonight. One of them is going to be really exciting, and then the other one's going to be going with Ash. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on now. <laughs> but uh, so <laughs> we split the crew right down the middle. Um, and yeah, half of our crew, because we had two practices left in the month before we break for uh, for Christmas break, because it just so happens we train on Thursdays. And after this week, the following two Thursdays is Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So that's going to be the end of it for us for the year um, as far as practice goes. So, um, yeah, usually we break it down to three, but uh, only having two two left, we, we just did it in, in half. So um, half obviously did the hazmat with uh, uh, Scott and them. And the other half, what we did is we did a structure fire scenario uh, everybody loves the burn building, but every time that we do a scenario with our department, um, you're getting 30 people that show up and like you're getting both of our engines, our rescue truck, our water tender, the bush truck, we're getting everything like you have everybody and generally everybody responds quickly. So um, what, what we kind of tried to do this, this time was see how this would all unfold with half of the manpower and more of a a delayed response so um myself and two two of the other training guys were down at our lower burn building we had a live patient um which is uh grant in scba because we we did have it uh burning we had a um a rescue dummy was placed in the building as well and a bit of a fun fact is we we just added on to our our search burn building. So there's another, um, there's another building quote to, to search. So there's an added bathroom and an added bedroom uh, coming off of one of the search hallways. So a lot of the people that were going in there to search were learning this during the scenario. So anyway, we got the fire going. Uh, we got Grant hid. We got the other uh, res rescue dummy hid. And then we called Bob down the chief. So the chief comes down and I gave Bob all of the info. Hey, we have a single family dwelling. Uh, there's a report of two patients inside. Um, you know, basically just said what you see is what you get. Every door is viable. Every window is viable. Because um, certain times in certain scenarios, we, we shut down one or the other. Um, so that's basically it. Like knowing that you're going to have a search team, uh, fire suppression, uh, and try to get a writ team going. All of this happening with half of the guys that we usually see uh, it was going to be something pretty in interesting. And um, a spinoff of that is we had basically all of our officers, excluding uh, Steve, one of them was either teaching or over on your side, Scott. So uh, yes. we had Warren, um, who's actually, he's been on the podcast before. And he's uh, running for an officer position in our in our department this year as well. So he put his hat in the ring and he stepped up during practice to see what that was going to look like. And um, I mean, we can talk a bit about that after. But uh, uh, yeah, so once Bob got down, once he seen what what we were expecting, he then called the first engine. So the first engine would then leave the hall. So that one starts coming down. By the time the engine got on scene. And he gave them the instructions of what he was looking for. Then he's calling the second one. And from that time, 
so on and so forth. And he said, basically, once the second one left, he gave it like 30, 40 seconds and then said, anything else that's uh, responding can now respond as well. So watching a bit more of a realistic approach to um, manpower getting on, on, on scene and just kind of getting back to like, like when I was saying that when we do our large scale scenarios, we try to do address chases where um, one truck is, you know, north of town, one truck south of town. Um, everybody knows, kind of gets the gist when they see us throwing SCBA like training packs over, over our shoulders and putting it in the back of the bush truck, there's a pretty good idea that we're going to go light up the burn, burn, the old burn building. So people stage themselves a little bit closer so they can get first on scene. Um, so keeping them back and getting that that uh, delayed stage coming down to the scene was, was really, really neat to see. And then seeing how somebody who doesn't generally step up into the officer position, because um, he wasn't running for officer position prior, um, seeing how somebody like that reacted to it was actually really, really good as well. Awesome. Yeah, it was a, it was a really fun, fun night. Um, watching one of the guys after after every sort of practice or scenario that we do we always do like a big debrief we'll we'll step away from the building step step away from the truck so we can hear you know one another talk and do a bit of a round table and we're going around and one of the guys um just kind of put his hand up and said hey like i thought everything went really really smooth but i started the night on red and then I got moved into doing something else. And he was not concerned. He was just bringing up like, a, hey, did we, from start to finish, did we have a crew for RIT? And Bob says right away, yes. However, that team sadly changed around a bit. So, so there was always the same one person that seemed to be on RIT. And then <clears throat> we did have to adapt. So as the scenario was unfolding, we did have have to adapt, but there was always, and I was watching for that as well, there was always three people at one point or another that were fresh, had SCBA, but were not actively in the fight. So being able to see a depleted manpower response where even in that regard, we were still able to have two to three people that can jump into RIT at any given time. These are some of the small things that we that we were looking for, like what what was going to be kind of swept by the wayside what you know we didn't want to be missing out on some of these safety things and they definitely didn't there was always a couple of people like one of them would have been an officer so it it, it would have been steve so he he wasn't actively in the fight he was kind of looking after the other side but he had scba and he was ready to go we had another guy that was backing up a transitional attack from the outside so he was in scba but he wasn't breathing um like he wasn't on air and he easily could have peeled himself away. So having these guys that are non-essential that can peel back and still head over to RIT, once that RIT team got activated to help pull patients out of windows. Because um, that's what his big concern was, was you know once we started to pull these RIT guys out to help extricate patients, what happens if now our guys on the inside drop? Who did we have left? So being being able to say, hey, like I understand that you were busy in the fight. This is actually what was happening on on the outside. It was really really good for the guys to see um, 
I guess not see, but at least hear and understand some of the the outside decisions and things that they weren't able to, you know, visibly see, but knowing what was happening on the back end of that. Right. Yeah, yeah that's always that's always a hard one when you have uh, limited manpower. A lot of people don't get this: is that okay? Yes, we need a red team established. Yes, you know, we do do that. Um, however, we're forced to doing things slightly different. Like you said, like, you know, now as that situation changes, now you're pulling out victims, depending on your manpower, what you had set up for that writ team, like you said, you know, now they are a rescue team and we still need guys for writ for our guys. You know, that's, that's the law. Um, you know, but it, <laughs> it's so hard to juggle that manpower effectively, but it sounds like you guys did a great job of always being aware and, and doing just, just that. You know, I think one thing like we talk about is, is the sooner you get those patients out, the sooner the rich or the guys don't have to be in there anymore. And then you don't need the yeah. red team anymore. Um, well, I mean, you still have yeah. a red team kicking around, but once they're out, you don't need that, that active red team. Um, so the sooner we can get everybody out, the better. Yep. And then especially with low manpower, now you're focused on, you know, maybe that patient care side of things. And, and yeah, maybe the structure is now not safe to go in and, and do it in interior. Who knows? Um, it'll awesome. be interesting next week, uh, Ash. Uh, yes, it's really going to be interesting. Because <laughs> uh, one thing for the hazmat, I, I wanted to make sure I took all the new guys for mine because that's part of their um, part of their sign off. So I took, I basically mm-hmm. took four four brand new guys with me, and then just a couple of senior people. Um, yep. Now next week when we rotate, which is coming up, um, you're going to have all the new people and a couple, two or three, two or three of the senior guys. And then I'm going to have all the senior guys in hazmat with me. So it'll be interesting to see the dynamics of what's going to happen. Maybe, um, maybe it'll be better. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you never know. Cause the, the new guys are all gung ho and ready to go. And I don't know. You have to see. It's going to be pretty interesting. So I robbed Bob last week and now in hindsight, I, I kind of wish I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize prior exactly how, rookie <laughs> the second rotation was going to be um yeah. so bob really wants to see the hazmat as well so he's going to be up with you guys right so i think to make it work one of us will jump into the ic role i mean as i see in that scenario um especially with the bob handled it was really good like he he was kind of the eyes and ears he he was the the ic but also the safety officer and still just kind of you know, stood back and allowed the the truck officers to to make the call. Other, like he said, hey, we got two patients. I want somebody on fire suppression, and I want a search team. And once he kind of put that in place, it was up to the truck officers to go from there. And that's really how we we tend tend to operate here. So, um, in a in a scenario like like this, even though we know where the patients are, we we could easily step back and take that IC role in a scenario and not give anything away. So one of us will have to do that next week. But then again, um, we'll have no active or uh, running truck officers <laughs> in in right. this scenario. So um, we'll see how that unfolds and how we can maybe manipulate that a little bit but uh as far as the firefighters going um it's going to be pretty interesting because yeah even 
not the rookie rookies, but we've we've got a couple newer members, um, and by newer members, like one or two years. But like those guys are dialed, and they like want to get after it. So um, I'm I'm really excited to see what kind of, like like what this is going to look like the next week here. Um, but yeah, it's going to be good. The new building works out awesome. I love it. I can't wait to to get a little bit more more work done. But uh, I I took the chief through there after practice, and he's like, yeah, this is awesome. There's a couple other things that that we did. Um, I don't know if any of our guys are going to be listening to this before Thursday, but I, I don't want to give away the secrets. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Right. I got some ideas too. On the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got some ideas too on that uh, tail end there. Ash. Oh yeah. Perfect. Um, thinking, you know how we have that extra, they have that fencing, that modular fencing. Yes. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking run that out a little bit, not for this scenario, but we could also mm-hmm. run that out and make a little bit of a maze coming out of that building. I gotcha. Yep. Yeah, uh, added added issues and be able to make it mm-hmm. modular. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the sweet thing about Seacans is uh, everything down there is completely modular. They can move. They can. I mean, we can add, add on to it at any time. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, making it where the guys. You know, it's funny. Speaking of, you know, everything can can move and change. However, the guys, I kind of said after, I'm like, is it muscle memory because you know the building or not so we say it's nighttime and there's potentially two victims are inside the building so what do they do go with a right hand search and search over towards the vis room immediately because that's where quote we would generally put a patient so they do they do the push towards the vis room immediately and uh, sure enough, there was nobody in there. <laughs> they didn't know there was another building. Yeah. They didn't know there was another building over there. Yeah, because when everything's true. rolling smoke and, and fire and you're in the moment and you're coming from the Delta side towards the Alpha, you don't see that um, this new building is over on the Bravo. So you have no idea mm-hmm. that it's over there. It even just looks like the front of the building still. So right. it, was, uh, it was really cool to see the guys push in and then come back out. No, we have no patience. So now they're thinking, oh, this is going to be over in the hallway. This is going to be easy. Yeah, well, right. <laughs> there's yeah, a whole bunch more over there now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was sweet, too. They ended up calling for the. I don't want to give away the secrets of how people do rescue in case anybody's listening. But, I mean, this is pretty much bread and butter for us. They called out for the uh, ladder right away and uh, got Grant on a ladder and up out of the window. The nice thing about the bedroom window that we put in there is a little bit higher than um, some of our, our other windows in our other training rooms. Um, yeah. So it, it was a bit more realistic, I think, where you know they they really had to use the ladder, use the leverage of uh, the window, and again, that's why the RIT team jumped over there because all of the other free manpower is over on the Delta side of the of of the building, and there is a window right around the corner of the Alpha Bravo. So they just jumped over for patient patient extrication. Um, so yes, they were actively working. They were getting this this uh, patient out. But again, if our if our guys dropped, I don't want to say right there. patient patient care would drop, but they're going to be right at the window where our guys are. Like they were they were looking through a window where yeah. the guys were. So were they actively doing something that they couldn't drop at the moment? Yes and no. But I still think in that scenario that that was the right call. Yeah. Well, if there's a patient half stuffed in the window that you have to go through to get your guys out, they got to get the <laughs> patient out first before they can do the rib. <laughs> exactly. Probably a good idea. It's not yeah. 
Not anybody call. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of what we were working on there. It was a, it was a pretty fun, fun little scenario. Um, and uh, yeah, I think uh, maybe we'll touch, touch base on this. It's something kind of some new conversation that's going around in our department right now. Um, uh, kind of stemmed off of your guys' weekend down doing hazmat. Um, so on any large scale scene, on any scene really, um, but especially on larger scale scenes, um, there should be a dedicated safety officer. And this is something that we um, generally are lacking unless we have our chief and our de- deputy chief on scene. Usually our deputy chief kind of assumes that, that role, but he's not always there. Sometimes the chief will be looking towards one of us as officers to be stepping into that position. Um, but then like we were discussing, that takes them out of the fight. So they arrive on a truck and now that truck is operating without an officer attached to it because they are they've now stepped, stepped into the role as, as the uh, safety officer. Um, and putting that all on the weight of the shoulders of the IC is a lot. Like when you're IC on any larger scale event, it's, there's a lot going on. So you want to be able to delegate that to somebody else and then have their eyes only on that, that portion of it. So you can see that, that, lar- that larger picture. So one of our current officers came up with the, a pretty good idea um, about having a dedicated safety officer position uh, in our department. Um, a few of us, I'd say probably well over half of us have discussed it now. Um, and I know there's going to be further discussion on it, but uh, um, I'm curious what other departments, especially what other uh, volunteer or paid on call departments are running when it comes to the safety officer position. Um, like, what do you guys do with that down uh, south there, Todd? Yeah, so we've been we've been having uh, discussions as well the last little while because um, essentially it's been the same as I think a lot of people do is you know the good old speeches everybody's in charge of safety. <laughs> yeah. uh, however, you know by saying that we all know that it doesn't work that way. Like we have, uh, it's up to the the officers or the team leads that kind of do that hat as well. But where it really pays off to have that dedicated safety person is those large events um because you do need it um so basically what we're doing now is uh usually that second truck in uh that officer in that jump will be designated as the safety officer uh we haven't had any large events where that's actually taken place yet but that has been the discussion um so we have each each truck outfitted with an ic vest and a safety officer vest um so depending on which side of the lake it arrives on um each truck is is ready to to be tasked mm-hmm. on whatever their role is, um, and also because we will we're rolling that uh, the duty officers as well during the weekdays. Um, so normally, on normal circumstances, we'll have one of the deputies um, in a uh, in a duty truck arriving there, acting as IC anyway. So, but that's that's kind of where we're going right now. Is is generally a second do will will be in charge of that um that role mm-hmm. yeah I, but i'm interested to see fluctuates i'm, I'm mm-hmm. interested to see how this uh, if if we go with this model uh right um, how to work um because there's some discussion using a using a more senior firefighter which is, we should because a safety officer um, they have to understand what is going on they have to understand the, the whole um the whole scene mm-hmm. um 
also, you know, the fact that that safety officer, he's going to be super detached from the situation. Um, we're, you know, we're even discussing him going in his own vehicle, just going direct in his own vehicle. Um, cause that does, it gets him detached from the truck. Cause when you're driving, you know, if you're in the jump seat, you're driving, you know, code three, you're in the second truck, you pull up on scene and you see, you start seeing guys going off trucks, deploying, um, there's, you're, you're just going to get drawn in naturally, I think. Um, you know, I believe so I as well. Yeah. Like just for being, uh, you know, being designated safety officer a few times, you, you just, you will get drawn in to the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting if we, if this method works where, you know, we're using a senior guy, um, he might go direct and then he's, he's basically super detached from the situation and he can make, uh, he gets over, see the overall scene, but he's not, he's also not worried about all the stuff the IC is worried about. So he's got basically that safety thing on his mind the whole time. Um, mm. It'll be interesting. It was, we're almost looking at maybe thinking of a pilot project to see how, how this goes. Um, yeah, I think that's that's key for something like this. I mean, this is uh, um, for the way that we've operated. This is definitely a step away from the norm for us. Um, so yeah. the talk has been, you know, let's do a bit of a pilot. Let's see what this looks like in six months. Uh, do a reevaluate, run it for another six, six months. If this is something that succeeds, this would be an, an elected position. If this is something that's maybe not looking the best, maybe we continue the pilot program for a bit further and see what actually comes of it. But um, for, for us, like we currently have what we call quote, a safety officer um, in our, in our department. And, um, no no fault to the person in the position right now but it should be called the buying somebody new gear officer that's realistically all it's good for <laughs> yeah i mean he's buying yeah. the safety equipment they think their job is mm-hmm. buying safety equipment not uh, not being the safety officer um yeah yeah the safety officers always fall on fallen onto one of the uh, shoulders of one of the officers in the past that's right and uh mm-hmm. and sometimes that's even hard to find because it's not like we um you know most safety officers in full-time they'll be wearing a blue helmet, um, yeah. but on scene, um, you know, we can put them in a different color vest, but sometimes you just don't notice the color vest. You're just, you're looking at the helmet, mm-hmm. you're looking at the guy. So, um, yeah, having a different color helmet, having a totally different person just standing there doing their thing, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. Right. It will just be for, uh, it, it sounds like we're looking at maybe not just for big, big incidents, it could be for MVIs, could be for uh, um, gas leaks, there's all sorts of stuff that a safety officer could be doing. I think it even comes back to back at, at the hall. So mm-hmm. um, our, our occupational health and safety, um, I mean, we've, we've got a complement of up to 35 people that could be in the workplace, whichever that may be, but it could be at the hall at any given time. Um, having a dedicated safety officer, a, which I mean, by, by law, we're supposed to have some, somebody which in that position. We, we have, we do have, um, our meetings our local, and we do have people in the position. Yeah. We have our but local putting town, that all uh, under one guy. tent. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But putting that all under one tent. Um, so kind of like modeling and building around that position. Um, I like the idea i like uh the direction of it it's just tough to say if it's something that's going to work like scott said a bit of a pilot i'd really like to see what this looks like after six months and see um yeah just kind of see what the rollout looks like 
Yeah, I'd be curious. I'd be curious as well. I mean, I don't know if just off the top of my head is I don't know if if it would really benefit having that person go direct all the time though, because I mean, realistically, like just the spitball in here, like you know, if if they're in that whatever truck they arrive on, you know, that crew can be delegated off to another team lead, you know, and keep your span of control small for for your divisions. Um, and, I, and I feel like that's kind of why we we're rolling with what we have now um, because I mean, well, one, you, you just don't know who's going to be available all the time. Um, you know, and so is that person going to make everything? Are they going to be arriving, you know, 30 minutes after the fact when they actually need a safety officer right away? Um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what you guys come up with for a little pilot project and, and sort it out. Yeah, yeah, I think the idea of keeping them separate from the truck is just getting that extra um, seat filled with uh, with an officer that's going to put, be putting a, uh, a mask on and, and possibly getting in the fight there. Um, I, I think the rule would be is if is if he, obviously if he doesn't if he's not able to come, then we'll just go back. To, we'll our fallback will be our, yep. our kind of usual. Um, the next best officer will be the safety officer. So, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll test the theory. <laughs> so we do. <laughs> yeah, never be afraid to try something. Um, it doesn't have to work, but sometimes it'll be awesome. So don't, don't throw gasoline on a fire. That's probably not a good idea. I would probably <laughs> avoid that. Don't do that if you're like at like a bush party. <laughs> don't do it at uh, a party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, don't do that at a bush party either. <laughs> Isn't that how you start fires? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. As Carl would say, any more for any more? <laughs> any more? Any more for any more, mates? <laughs> I don't think so. I think, you know, just looking back at, you know, hazmat stuff, like, I think the big takeaways people need to remember is, um, you know, sl- slow is fast with, uh, with hazmat. So you just got to slow things down. You know, use that ERG guide. <clears throat> You know, dig into that and that NIOSH manual a little bit as well. Um, you know, and not just the first time you touch those books is when the incidents are going down. So practice with them, get fluid with using them because uh, it definitely takes a little bit. I mean, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. Like the last time I touched the ERG guide was forever ago until this course arrived. Um, so it does take a little bit to dust things off. Um, and then the other thing is just for us small departments, like, like you said, uh, you don't need all these fancy Gucci suits. You need the awareness and this ops level to start and, you know, how to properly assess and set up your emergency washdown procedures, learn about emergency washdown, containment, et cetera. Um, there's some different different scenarios, which we've done in the past. Um, yeah. And just learn simple decon. Yep. Nice. All right. So we uh, uh the old shout outs, yeah. Ash Modus. Ash Modus. Thanks. Uh, Modus, yeah. So I, I was going to say Scott should roll into Modus because uh, I, I think he's um, spearheading a uh, order that we have coming in in the next couple of days, which we're all pretty excited about. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we have another order coming in and we got some uh, tools for some of the boys and the uh, 
uh, the new turnout pocket organizer. We have those coming in. So really, really excited to, to kind of put everything in, in one clean little kit, um, which is going to be great. So some of that stuff that we're going to be adding into our kit is uh, the uh, snagger tool, kind of their claim to fame. Uh, they've, they've also got some uh, um, the attachments for the Olfa knives for soft entry. They've also got the door wedges. They've got uh, um, the sweet new era hydrant wrench, which is awesome. Uh, it looks like it's sold out on their website. I'm not sure when that's coming back in, but uh, uh, our guys all loved that. So check out our uh, YouTubes, our Facebooks, and Instagrams. We've, we've got some uh, photos and videos up on that. Um, if you like what you see there and you want to support this uh, pretty wicked committee in business, uh, check them out online and enter DTFF5 for 5% off your order. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, you, want to hit, you want to hit ignition? Sure. Um, and also with uh, back to Modus real quick, uh, when I was talking with Paul, uh, he was trying to slide in a few other little things he's sending us in our current order but we missed it it was already being shipped so there's another box coming with a couple of goodies nice so that's coming as well mm -hmm. but uh yeah ignition usa um the uh crap the seattle rapid access tool so a while back we went down there and got to meet with jason um, in seattle and tried it out for a lot of those um uh, soft entry the passive entry um devices and it, it works like, you know, it works really good for your industrial type, um, apartment type buildings. Um, it, it definitely has its, uh, has its application like any other tool. Um, and you need to get familiar with it, but it works excellent for being able to gain entry and leave that uh, facility secured afterwards. Even though we love breaking doors and breaking things with forceful entry, there's a huge need for passive entry. So um, Ignition USA and I can't remember what was the we only got till the end of 2020 for the that's right gtff 2020 okay. yeah gtff 2020 reach, yeah reach back out and make make sure we can uh keep keep offering something like that for you guys right. yeah but uh yeah go online uh you can see uh on our facebook and youtube there's some video of it as well and then uh ignition there they've got a lot of uh good videos that they've wor worked on and put out as well to see how it actually is being used and stop the bleed. Uh, I guess I'll do stop the bleed. Uh, stop the bleed, uh, great course on bleeding control. Three methods are gonna be um, direct pressure, wound packing, tourniquets. Uh, it's awesome because it's free. And um, basically to get trained, just go to bleedingcontrol.org, look at a course near you. If you're an EMT or fire or um, law enforcement, you can actually take the course and then become an instructor in it. Um, discount code for 100% off your next bleed is uh, well, just take the course. <laughs> There's no discount code. Uh, so, yeah, just take the course and learn how to stop the bleed. <laughs> nice. Beautiful. And I guess you can roll right into Tanner. Oh, you can do Tanner if you want. Sure. <laughs> you like country music. I do. Yeah, I was rocking it the other day. I went and uh, got a Christmas tree with the kids and we were, we were coming back and got some uh, good old-fashioned, wholesome country music there, stretching denim. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the kids were loving it. Um, yeah, so if you like uh, country music, um, Western Canada, 
coming out of where are they like Abbotsford? Abbotsford, Chilliwack area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tanner Olson Band. They've got uh, a record out right now. Looks like they're they're putting out some new music here around the holidays. I don't know what's coming out, but I saw something on. On, on their Facebook neon the other day. Christmas. Neon Christmas. And Neon Christmas. Yeah, that sounds super country. <laughs> um, but yeah, check them out. Um, their latest album is called Stretch and Denim. Uh, definitely catchy tunes. And if we ever end up getting our uh, seminar, uh, they they say they, they they still want to come and play for us. Yeah. <laughs> so That'd be awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, I guess lastly is us. Is that right? Yeah. Lastly, is us. Yeah. Check us out yep. on uh, Facebook, on mm-hmm. Instagram. We still on Instagram. Yep. We're still on it. YouTube. We have a lot of videos on YouTube. We have the um, Stop the Bleed um, series of videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a few other uh, things on hose handling, that sort of stuff. Check those out. And uh, if you haven't liked and subscribed to this podcast, do so. Leave a comment. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to become a guest, you can't be weird, like I always say, but you can uh, let us know. <laughs> to get John, we're looking at a few more guests in the new year. Um, we got a few yeah. people lined up right now, so hopefully that's going to happen soon. Yeah. yeah, those would be good. Looking forward to those. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, I think uh, we'll call it at that, guys. Um, I apologize for not being English. And I'm sure this was uh, not, <laughs> I want to say, the smooth podcast that we always have. But uh, yeah, definitely missing Carl for sure. So yeah, uh, hopefully he's back here in the next week or so and we can get ourselves back to normal. But uh, yeah, as always, guys, thanks uh, for tuning in. Uh, thank, thanks for listening. Like Scott says, like, subscribe. It just gets us out, out there in front of you guys um, and more more people. So I uh, would greatly appreciate that. So if nobody has anything else, we will say goodnight to uh, everybody there. And as always, stay safe. Stay DTFF. Good night. Good night.